Part three of Paul and Virginia. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Alice Christophe. Paul and Virginia by Bernadine de Saint Pierre. Part three. Every day was to these families a day of happiness and tranquillity. Neither ambition nor envy disturbed their repose. They did not seek to obtain a useless reputation out of doors, which may be procured by artifice and lost by calumny, but were contented to be the sole witnesses and judges of their own actions. In this island, where, as is the case in most colonies, scandal forms the principal topic of conversation, their virtues, and even their names were unknown. The passer-by on the road to Shadaku Grove, indeed, would sometimes ask the inhabitants of the plain who lived in the cottages up there, and was always told, even by those who did not know them, they are good people. The modest violet thus, concealed in thorny places, sheds all unseen its delightful fragrance around. Slander, which, under an appearance of justice, naturally inclines the heart to falsehood, or to hatred, was entirely banished from their conversation. For it is impossible not to hate men, if we believe them to be wicked, or to live with the wicked without concealing that hatred under a false pretense of good feeling. Slander thus puts us ill at ease with others, and with ourselves. In this little circle, therefore, the conduct of individuals was not discussed, but the best manner of doing good to all. And although they had but little in their power, their unceasing goodwill and kindness of heart made them constantly ready to do what they could for others. Solitude, far from having blunted these benevolent feelings, had rendered their dispositions even more kindly. Although the petty scandals of the day furnished no subject of conversation to them, yet the contemplation of nature filled their minds with enthusiastic delight. They adored the bounty of that providence, which, by their instrumentality, had spread abundance and beauty amid these barren rocks, and had enabled them to enjoy those pure and simple pleasures, which are ever grateful and ever new. Paul, at twelve years of age, was stronger and more intelligent than most European youths are at fifteen, and the plantations which Domingo merely cultivated were embellished by him. He would go with the old negro into the neighbouring woods, where he would root up the young plants of lemon, orange, and tamarind trees, the round heads of which are so fresh a green, together with date palm trees, which produce fruit filled with a sweet cream, possessing the fine perfume of the orange flower. These trees, which had already attained to a considerable size, he planted round their little enclosure. He had also sown the seeds of many trees which the second year bear flowers or fruit, such as the agathis, encircled with long clusters of white flowers which hang from it like the crystal pendants of a chandelier, the Persian lilac, which lifts high in air its grey flax-coloured branches, the papua tree, the branchless trunk of which forms a column studded with green melons, surmounted by a capital of broad leaves similar to those of the fig-tree. The seeds and kernels of the gum-tree, terminalia, mango, alligator-pear, 
the guava, the breadfruit tree, and the narrow-leaved rose-apple, were also planted by him with profusion. And the greater number of these trees already afforded their young cultivator both shade and fruit. His industrious hands diffused the riches of nature over even the most barren parts of the plantation. Several species of aloes, the Indian fig, adorned with yellow flowers spotted with red, and the thorny torch thistle, grew upon the dark summits of the rocks, and seemed to aim at reaching the long lianas, which, laden with blue or scarlet flowers, hung scattered over the steepest parts of the mountain. I loved to trace the ingenuity he had exercised in the arrangement of these trees. He had so disposed them that the whole could be seen at a single glance. In the middle of the hollow he had planted shrubs of the lowest growth. Behind grew the more lofty sorts, then trees of the ordinary height, and beyond and above all the venerable and lofty groves which border the circumference. Thus this extensive enclosure appeared from its centre like a verdant amphitheatre decorated with fruits and flowers, containing a variety of vegetables, some strips of meadow-land, and fields of rice and corn. But, in arranging these vegetable productions to his own taste, he wandered not too far from the designs of nature. Guided by her suggestions, he had thrown upon the elevated spots such seeds as the winds would scatter about, and near the borders of the springs those which float upon the water. Every plant thus grew in its proper soil, and every spot seemed decorated by nature's own hand. The streams which fell from the summits of the rocks formed in some parts of the valley sparkling cascades, and in others were spread into broad mirrors, in which were reflected set in verdure the flowering trees, the overhanging rocks, and the azure heavens. Notwithstanding the great irregularity of the ground, these plantations were, for the most part, easy of access. We had indeed all given him our advice and assistance in order to accomplish this end. He had conducted one path entirely round the valley, and various branches from it led from the circumference to the centre. He had drawn some advantage from the most ragged spots, and had blended, in harmonious union, level walks with the inequalities of the soil, and trees which grow wild with the cultivated varieties. With that immense quantity of large pebbles which now block up these paths, and which are scattered over most of the ground of this island, he formed pyramidal heaps here and there, at the base of which he laid mould, and planted rose-bushes, the Barbados flower fence, and other shrubs which love to climb the rocks. In a short time the dark and shapeless heaps of stones he had constructed were covered with verdure, or with the glowing tints of the most beautiful flowers. Hollow recesses on the borders of the streams, shaded by the overhanging boughs of aged trees, formed rural grottoes, impervious to the rays of the sun, in which you might enjoy a refreshing coolness during the midday heats. One path led to a clump of forest trees, in the centre of which, sheltered from the wind, you found a fruit tree, laden with produce. Here was a corn-field, there an orchard. 
From one avenue you had a view of the cottages, from another, of the inaccessible summit of the mountain. Beneath one tufted bower of gum-trees, interwoven with lianas, no object whatever could be perceived, while the point of the adjoining rock, jutting out from the mountain, commanded a view of the whole enclosure, and of the distant ocean, where occasionally we could discern the distant sail, arriving from Europe, or bound thither. On this rock the two families frequently met in the evening, and enjoyed in silence the freshness of the flowers, the gentle murmurs of the fountain, and the last blended harmonies of light and shade. Nothing could be more charming than the names which were bestowed upon some of the delightful retreats of this labyrinth. The rock of which I have been speaking, whence they could discern my approach at a considerable distance, was called the discovery of friendship. Paul and Virginia had amused themselves by planting a bamboo on that spot, and whenever they saw me coming, they hoisted a little white handkerchief. By way of signal of my approach, as they had seen a flag hoisted on the neighbouring mountain on the side of a vessel at sea. The idea struck me of engraving an inscription on the stalk of this reed, for I never, in the course of my travels, experienced anything like the pleasure in seeing a statue or other monument of ancient art, as in reading a well-written inscription. It seems to me as if a human voice issued from the stone, and making itself heard after the lapse of ages, addressed man in the midst of a desert to tell him that he is not alone, and that other men on that very spot had felt, and thought, and suffered like himself. If the inscription belongs to an ancient nation, which no longer exists, it leads the soul through infinite space, and strengthens the consciousness of its immortality, by demonstrating that a thought has survived the ruins of an empire. I inscribed then, on the little staff of Paul and Virginia's flag, the following lines of Horace. Fratres Helene, Lucida Sidera, Ventorum queregat pater, Obstrictis alis preter iapiga. May the brothers of Helen, bright stars like you, and the father of the winds guide you, and may you feel only the breath of the zephyr. There was a gum tree, under the shade of which Paul was accustomed to sit, to contemplate the sea when agitated by storms. On the bark of this tree, I engraved the following lines from Virgil. Fortunatus et il Deus qui novit agrestes. Happy art thou, my son, in knowing only the pastoral divinities. And over the door of Madame de la Tour's cottage, where the family so frequently met, I placed this line. At secura quies et nescia valere vita. Here dwell a calm conscience, and a life that knows not deceit. But Virginia did not approve of my Latin. She said that what I had placed at the foot of her flagstaff was too long and too learned. I should have liked better, added she, to have seen inscribed, ever agitated, yet constant. Such a motto, I answered, would have been still more applicable to virtue. My reflection made her blush. The delicacy of sentiment of these happy families was manifested in everything around them, 
They gave the tenderest names to objects in appearance the most indifferent. A border of orange, plantain, and rose-apple trees, planted around a green sward where Virginia and Paul sometimes danced, received the name of Concord. An old tree, beneath the shade of which Madame de la Tour and Margaret used to recount their misfortunes, was called the burial place of tears. They bestowed the names of Brittany and Normandy on two little plots of ground, where they had sown corn, strawberries, and peas. Domingo and Mary, wishing, in imitation of their mistresses, to recall to mind Angola and Fulpoint, the places of their birth in Africa, gave those names to the little fields where the grass was sown with which they wove their baskets, and where they had planted a calabash tree. Thus, by cultivating the productions of their respective climates, these exiled families cherished the dear illusions which bind us to our native country, and softened their regrets in a foreign land. Alas! I have seen these trees, these fountains, these heaps of stones which are now so completely overthrown, which now, like the desolated plains of Greece, present nothing but masses of ruin and affecting remembrances, all called into life by the many charming appellations thus bestowed upon them. But perhaps the most delightful spot of this enclosure was that called Virginia's resting place. At the foot of the rock which bore the name of the discovery of friendship is a small crevice, whence issues a fountain, forming near its source a little spot of marshy soil in the middle of a field of rich grass. At the time of Paul's birth I had made Margaret a present of an Indian cocoa, which had been given me, and which she planted on the border of this fenny ground, in order that the tree might one day serve to mark the epoch of her son's birth. Madame de la Tour planted another cocoa with the same view at the birth of Virginia. These nuts produced two cocoa trees, which formed the only records of the two families. One was called Paul's tree, the other... Virginius. Their growth was in the same proportion as that of the two young persons, not exactly equal, but they rose, at the end of twelve years, above the roofs of the cottages. Already their tender stalks were interwoven, and clusters of young cocos hung from them over the basin of the fountain. With the exception of these two trees, this nook of the rock was left as it had been decorated by nature. On its embrowned and moist sides broad plants of maiden hair glistened with their green and dark stars, and tufts of wave-leaved heart's tongue, suspended like long ribbons of purpled green, floated on the wind. Near this grew a chain of the Madagascar periwinkle, the flowers of which resembled the red gillyflower, and the long-podded capsicum, the seed-vessels of which are of the colour of blood, and more resplendent than coral. Near them, the herb balm, with its heart-shaped leaves, and the sweet basil which has the odour of the clove, exhale the most delicious perfumes. From the precipitous side of the mountain hung the graceful lianas, like floating draperies, forming magnificent canopies of verdure on the face of the rocks. The sea-birds, allured by the stillness of these retreats, resorted here to pass the night. At the hour of sunset, we could perceive the curlew and the stint skimming along the seashore, the frigate bird poised high in air, and the white bird of the tropic, 
which abandons, with the star of day, the solitudes of the Indian Ocean. Virginia took pleasure in resting herself upon the border of this fountain, decorated with wild and sublime magnificence. She often went thither to wash the linen of the family beneath the shade of the two cocoa trees, and thither too she sometimes led her goats to graze. While she was making cheese of their milk, she loved to see them browse on the maiden hair fern, which clothes the steep sides of the rock, and hang suspended by one of its cornices, as on a pedestal. Paul, observing that Virginia was fond of this spot, brought thither, from the neighbouring forest, a great variety of birds' nests. The old birds following their young soon established themselves in this new colony. Virginia, at stated times, distributed amongst them grains of rice, millet, and maize. As soon as she appeared, the whistling blackbird, the amadavid bird, whose note is so soft, the cardinal, with its flame-coloured plumage, forsook their bushes. The paraquet, green as an emerald, descended from the neighbouring fan-palms. The partridge ran along the grass. All advanced promiscuously towards her, like a brood of chickens. And she and Paul found an exhaustless source of amusement in observing their sports, their repasts, and their loves. Amiable children, thus passed your earlier days in innocence, and in obeying the impulses of kindness. How many times, on this very spot, have your mothers, pressing you in their arms, blessed heaven for the consolation your unfolding virtues prepared for their declining years, while they at the same time enjoyed the satisfaction of seeing you begin life under the happiest auspices? How many times, beneath the shade of those rocks, have I partaken with them of your rural repasts, which never cost any animal its life? Gourds full of milk, fresh eggs, cakes of rice served up on plantain leaves, with baskets of mangoes, oranges, dates, pomegranates, pineapples, furnished a wholesome repast, the most agreeable to the eye, as well as delicious to the taste, that can possibly be imagined. Like the repast, the conversation was mild, and free from everything having a tendency to do harm. Paul often talked of the labours of the day and of the morrow. He was continually planning something for the accommodation of their little society. Here he discovered that the paths were rugged, there that the seats were uncomfortable. Sometimes the young arbours did not afford sufficient shade, and Virginia might be better pleased elsewhere. During the rainy season the two families met together in the cottage, and employed themselves in weaving mats of grass, and baskets of bamboo. Rakes, spades, and hatchets were ranged along the walls in the most perfect order, and near these instruments of agriculture were heaped its products, bags of rice, sheaves of corn, and baskets of plantains. Some degree of luxury usually accompanies abundance, and Virginia was taught by her mother and Margaret to prepare sherbet and cordials from the juice of the sugar cane, the lemon, and the citron. When night came, they all supped together by the light of a lamp, after which Madame de la Tour or Margaret related some story of travellers benighted in those woods of Europe that are still infested by banditti, or told a dismal tale of some shipwrecked vessel, 
thrown by the tempest upon the rocks of a desert island. To these recitals the children listened with eager attention, and earnestly hoped that heaven would one day grant them the joy of performing the rites of hospitality towards such unfortunate persons. When the time for repose arrived, the two families separated and retired for the night, eager to meet again the following morning. Sometimes they were lulled to repose by the beating of the rains, which fell in torrents upon the roofs of their cottages, and sometimes by the hollow winds, which brought to their ear the distant roar of the waves breaking upon the shore. They blessed God for their own safety, the feeling of which was brought home more forcibly to their minds by the sound of remote danger. Madame de la Tour occasionally read aloud some affecting history of the Old or New Testament, her auditors reasoned but little upon these sacred volumes, for their theology centred in a feeling of devotion towards the Supreme Being, like that of nature. And their morality was an active principle, like that of the Gospel. These families had no particular days devoted to pleasure, and others to sadness. Every day was to them a holiday, and all that surrounded them one holy temple, in which they ever adored the infinite intelligence, the almighty God, the friend of humankind. A feeling of confidence in his supreme power filled their minds with consolation for the past, with fortitude under present trials, and with hope in the future. Compelled by misfortune to return almost to a state of nature, these excellent women had thus developed in their own and their children's bosoms the feelings most natural to the human mind, and its best support under affliction. But, as clouds sometimes arise, and cast a gloom over the best regulated tempers, so, whenever any member of this little society appeared to be labouring under dejection, the rest assembled around, and endeavoured to banish her painful thoughts, by amusing the mind rather than by grave arguments against them. Each performed this kind office in their own appropriate manner, Margaret, by her gaiety, Madame de la Tour, by the gentle consolations of religion, Virginia, by her tender caresses, Paul, by his frank and engaging cordiality. Even Mary and Domingo hastened to offer their succour, and to weep with those that wept. Thus do weak plants interweave themselves with each other, in order to withstand the fury of the tempest. During the fine season, they went every Sunday to the church of the Shaddock Grove, the steeple of which you see yonder upon the plain. Many wealthy members of the congregation who came to church in palanquins sought the acquaintance of these united families and invited them to parties of pleasure. But they always repelled those overtures with respectful politeness, as they were persuaded that the rich and powerful seek the society of persons in an inferior station only for the sake of surrounding themselves with flatterers, and that every flatterer must applaud alike all the actions of his patron, whether good or bad. On the other hand, they avoided with equal care too intimate an acquaintance with the lower class, who are ordinarily jealous, calumniating and gross. They thus acquired, with some, the character of being timid, and with others, of pride. But their reserve was accompanied with so much obliging politeness, above all towards the unfortunate and the unhappy, that they insensibly acquired the respect of the rich, 
and the confidence of the poor. After service, some kind office was often required at their hands by their poor neighbours. Sometimes a person troubled in mind sought their advice. Sometimes a child begged them to its sick mother, in one of the adjoining hamlets. They always took with them a few remedies for the ordinary diseases of the country, which they administered in that soothing manner which stamps a value upon the smallest favours. Above all, they met with singular success in administrating to the disorders of the mind so intolerable in solitude, and under the infirmities of a weakened frame. Madame de la Tour spoke with such sublime confidence of the divinity, that the sick, while listening to her, almost believed him present. Virginia often returned home with her eyes full of tears, and her heart overflowing with delight, at having had an opportunity of doing good, for to her generally was confided the task of preparing and administering the medicines, a task which she fulfilled with angelic sweetness. After these visits of charity, they sometimes extended their walk by the sloping mountain, till they reached my dwelling, where I used to prepare dinner for them on the banks of the little rivulet which glides near my cottage. I procured for these occasions a few bottles of old wine, in order to heighten the relish of our oriental repast by the more genial productions of Europe. At other times we met on the seashore, at the mouth of some little river, or rather mere brook. We brought from home the provisions furnished us by our gardens, to which we added those supplied us by the sea in abundant variety. We caught on these shores the mullet, the roach, and the sea urchin, lobsters, shrimps, crabs, oysters, and all other kinds of shellfish. In this way, we often enjoyed the most tranquil pleasures in situations the most terrific. Sometimes, seated upon a rock, under the shade of the velvet sunflower tree, we saw the enormous waves of the Indian Ocean break beneath our feet with a tremendous noise. Paul, who could swim like a fish, would advance on the reefs to meet the coming billows. Then, at their near approach, would run back to the beach, closely pursued by the foaming breakers, which threw themselves with a roaring noise far on the sands. But Virginia, at this sight, uttered piercing cries, and said that such sports frightened her too much. Other amusements were not wanting on these festive occasions. Our repasts were generally followed by the songs and dances of the two young people. Virginia sang the happiness of pastoral life, and the misery of those who were impelled by avarice to cross the raging ocean, rather than cultivate the earth, and enjoy its bounties in peace. Sometimes she performed a pantomime with Paul, after the manner of the Negroes. The first language of man is pantomime. It is known to all nations, and is so natural and expressive, that the children of the European inhabitants catch it with facility from the Negroes. Virginia, recalling from among the histories which her mother had read to her, those which had affected her most, represented the principal events in them with beautiful simplicity. Sometimes, at the sound of Domingo's tantum, she appeared upon the green sward, bearing a pitcher upon her head, and advanced with a timid step towards the source of a neighbouring fountain, to draw water. Domingo and Mary, personating the shepherds of Midian, forbade her to approach, 
and repulsed her sternly. Upon this Paul flew to her succour, beat away the shepherds, filled Virginia's pitcher, and placing it upon her head, bound her brows at the same time with a wreath of the red flowers of the Madagascar periwinkle, which served to heighten the delicacy of her complexion. Then, joining in their sports, I took upon myself the part of Ragwell, and bestowed upon Paul my daughter Zephora in marriage. Another time Virginia would represent the unhappy Ruth, returning poor and widowed with her mother-in-law, who, after so prolonged an absence, found herself as unknown as in a foreign land. Domingo and Mary personated the reapers. The supposed daughter of Naomi followed their steps, gleaning here and there a few years of corn. When interrogated by Paul, a part which he performed with the gravity of a patriarch, she answered his questions with a faltering voice. He then, touched with compassion, granted an asylum to innocence and hospitality to misfortune. He filled her lap with plenty, and leading her towards us as before the elders of the city, declared his purpose to take her in marriage. At this scene, Madame de la Tour, recalling the desolate situation in which she had been left by her relations, her widowhood, and the kind reception she had met with from Margaret, succeeded now by the soothing hope of a happy union between their children, could not forbear weeping. And these mixed recollections of good and evil caused us all to unite with her in shedding tears of sorrow and of joy. These dramas were performed with such an air of reality, that you might have fancied yourself transported to the plains of Syria or of Palestine. We were not unfurnished with decorations, lights, or an orchestra suitable to the representation. The scene was generally placed in an open space of the forest, the diverging paths from which formed around us numerous arcades of foliage, under which we were sheltered from the heat all the middle of the day. But when the sun descended towards the horizon, its rays, broken by the trunks of the trees, darted amongst the shadows of the forest in long lines of light, producing the most magnificent effect. Sometimes its broad disk appeared at the end of an avenue, lighting it up with insufferable brightness. The foliage of the trees, illuminated from beneath by its saffron beams, glowed with the lustre of the topaz and the emerald. Their brown and mossy trunks appeared transformed into columns of antique bronze, and the birds, which had retired in silence to their leafy shades to pass the night, surprised to see the radiance of a second morning, hailed the star of day altogether with innumerable carols. Night often overtook us during these rural entertainments, but the purity of the air and the warmth of the climate admitted of our sleeping in the woods without incurring any danger by exposure to the weather and no less secure from the molestations of robbers. On our return the following day to our respective habitations, we found them in exactly the same state in which they had been left. In this island, then unsophisticated by the pursuits of commerce, such were the honesty and primitive manners of the population, that the doors of many houses were without a key, and even a lock itself was an object of curiosity to not a few of the native inhabitants. There were, however, some days in the year celebrated by Paul and Virginia in a more peculiar manner. 
These were the birthdays of their mothers. Virginia never failed the day before to prepare some wheat and cakes, which she distributed among a few poor white families born in the island, who had never eaten European bread. These unfortunate people, uncared for by the blacks, were reduced to live on tapioca in the woods, and as they had neither the insensibility which is the result of slavery, nor the fortitude which springs from a liberal education to enable them to support their poverty, their situation was deplorable. These cakes were all that Virginia had it in her power to give away, but she conferred the gift in so delicate a manner as to add tenfold to its value. In the first place, Paul was commissioned to take the cakes himself to these families, and get their promise to come and spend the next day at Madame de la Tour's. Accordingly, mothers of families, with two or three thin, yellow, miserable-looking daughters, so timid that they dared not look up, made their appearance. Virginia soon put them at their ease. She waited upon them with refreshments, the excellence of which she endeavoured to heighten by relating some particular circumstance which in her own estimation vastly improved them. One beverage had been prepared by Margaret, another by her mother. Her brother himself had climbed some lofty tree for the very fruit she was presenting. She would then get Paul to dance with them, nor would she leave them till she saw that they were happy. She wished them to partake of the joy of her own family. It is only, she said, by promoting the happiness of others that we can secure our own. When they left, she generally presented them with some little article they seemed to fancy, enforcing their acceptance of it by some delicate pretext, that she might not appear to know they were in want. If she remarked that their clothes were much tattered, she obtained her mother's permission to give them some of her own, and then sent Paul to leave them secretly at their cottage doors. She thus followed the divine precept, concealing the benefactor, and revealing only the benefit. End of part three.